You are listening to She the Change, a podcast that inspires future change makers to start taking action because everyone has the power to change the world. My name is Itasha Donthi, and I'm a change maker best known for being the CEO and founder of a charity called Hope and Joy for Children. And I'm sitting down with female leaders who are advocating, empowering, and initiating change on a local and global scale. Here we talk about how they got started, their inspiration, and most importantly, how others can make an impact. Today, I had the amazing opportunity to speak with Stuthi Chakraborty. She is currently an intern at Christian Medical College in Valor. With that, she is also a country representative for Healthcare Information for All. She's part of the SDG3 Working Group for the United Nations Major Group for Children and Youth, a country correspondent for Your Commonwealth, a communications team correspondent for the Global Healthcare Workforce Network, and a country correspondent for IHP Global. She recently started working with Global Health Mentorships as a content facilitator and is also a pioneer member for the launch of the India Chapter of Women in Global Health as a chapter officer over the last few months. She was also the only youth speaker from India to shed light on the topic of gender equity in the healthcare sector, for the GHWN Youth Hub online conference, hosted in December of 2019. She has represented her country across several platforms where she advocates for young people's health with a special focus on the rights of persons with disabilities. She has been able to provide health education to over 15 rural areas on topics of disability, menstrual health, and gender-based violence. During our conversation, Suthi discussed the inequality in the healthcare sector, advocating on behalf of people with disabilities, and starting the mental health conversation in India. It was a pleasure speaking with Suthi and learning about her perspective. With that being said, let's get into today's episode. Hi, Suthi. Hi, Tasha. Thank you for being on the podcast today. How are you? Thank you so much for having me over. I'm doing great. Awesome. So to get started, do you mind giving the audience a little background about yourself? Definitely. Um, So I just completed my undergraduate degree uh, in Bachelor of Occupational Therapy, uh, which is a part of physical medicine and rehabilitation. And I live in the southern part of India right now in a town called, in a city called Velour, which is in Tamil Nadu. And I went to university um, to college here, Christian Medical College Velour. And right now I am finishing my undergraduate degree obligation um, in a clinical setup and working with uh, mainly people with neurological disorders such as uh, brain injuries and strokes. That's awesome. So how has living in India shaped who you are today? Well, I would say, um, you know, In general, India is an extremely diverse country, and I'm really lucky to be born as an Indian, uh, especially someone who comes from a family of privilege, um, mainly because, you know, there are there is a lot of inequality in my country in terms of uh, uh, resources, accessibility, privilege, uh, socioeconomic status, everything. So um, I, but then, you know, the experiences that I've had have really shaped me in terms of being a, a, a person uh, with a wider outlook. And also because I have, you know, 
so I was born in the eastern part of India. When I was really young, I moved to the western part of India. And then when I started university about five years ago, I moved to the southern part of India. So I have moved across the country and, you know, because India is so diverse, each part of the country has its own culture, tradition, as you know, you must be aware. So uh, living in different parts has made me really, uh, you know, adaptive and sort of responsive to uh, different people's people, cultures, traditions. And I think having such an amazing experience um, is possible only in a diverse country like India, where you get to learn so much about every different place and you still feel like you don't know enough. Mm-hmm. I can definitely see how that connects with your work that we're going to later discuss in this podcast episode. And I think it's great that you're using your resources that you have to advocate for those who can't. And it's really important, especially in this political climate at this time, to come together and support those who need who need our help. Correct. Yeah. So who were your inspirations growing up and are they the same people you look up to today? Uh, so I would say my biggest inspirations, uh, inspiration is my parents. Um, they are, you know, I'm from a middle-class family and they are hardworking and they are, you know, extremely, extremely, um, supportive. Uh, they've I've always been very supportive of, uh, whatever I wanted to do in life, uh, which is not the case for a lot of Indian, you know, families and parents, um, still today, unfortunately, which is one of the reasons why mm-hmm. there is a lot of mental health issues, which is something which, you know, I would love, love to chat with you later about. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, my parents always were extremely supportive about me doing whatever I wanted to do in terms of, um, studies, education, all of that. And uh, especially my my dad has been in, you know, he never put any pressure on on me in terms of academics or excelling. He just told me one thing that you should be a good human being, no matter what you do in life. The most important thing is remember to be a good human being. So Mm -hmm. I definitely, I don't say that I'm perfect. I'm definitely trying each and every day. I make a lot of mistakes too, but you know, I, I really hope that I can make a difference um, someday. And, you know, with the small things that I do, I may, I can make a big difference. So like I said, my biggest inspiration is my parents. Apart from my parents, I think I don't really have like a single person I can say I take inspiration from. I take mm-hmm. inspiration from a lot of people, be it, uh, you know, starting from freedom fighters that we learned about uh, in history when we were younger to scientists today. Uh, to anybody who's working maybe, you know, in the front lines of COVID right now, um, I think everybody is an inspiration for me. So I, I, I just adapt inspiration from wherever I go. But if I would specifically want to pinpoint, I think my biggest inspiration for me is my patients and the clients that I work with. Um, mm. You know, as a, as a as a healthcare professional, um, you know, I, I deal with clients and patients every day that have gone through so many difficulties in their life and they're still stri- struggling and fighting each and every day to um, live life to their fullest and they're not giving up. So I think that is the biggest thing that I take inspiration from at the moment. Yeah, I think it's amazing that the idea that helping others and bringing good to the community is your main source of um, motivation. And I'm, it's amazing that your parents were able to instill that value in you. Thank you. Yeah. So moving on to your experience as a healthcare professional, what are your roles and responsibilities as a country representative of healthcare information for all? 
Right. So I joined HIFA or Healthcare Information for All about a year ago. Um, and HIFA is an amazing platform for people who, you know, want to sort of express their, it's basically a platform for discussion about different healthcare related issues, public health. And the main goal of HIFA is to prevent healthcare misinformation. So one of the major reasons why, um, Healthcare around the world, especially in developing countries and low and middle income countries, is such a big problem. And there are so many challenges in healthcare is because a lot of people are misinformed. And I'm sure you must be aware of the fact that right now we're dealing with an, a pandemic as well as an mm-hmm. infodemic where there is so much of misinformation. I mean, the moment you open WhatsApp, you have been you, you get bombarded with, you know, a wrong information and things about, you know, 5G contributing towards coronavirus or, you know, things like. Just just random things which do not make any sense and do not have a scientific basis. But there is so mm-hmm. much of misinformation all around to scare people. So one of the biggest goals of HIFA is to prevent the spread of misinformation. So as a part of HIFA, I have been uh, involved in the discussions that are, you know, that happen in HIFA. And I must mention here that Dr. Neil Packenham Walsh, who is the moderator for HIFA, the, the platform or the forum is a really amazing approachable person. So anybody who's listening to this, if you're interested to just in general, um, you know, if whether or not you're a healthcare professional, but just to acquire more information about healthcare and healthcare related topics, especially public health, um, especially now in the time of coronavirus, I think HIFA is a great platform. You get emails daily about different issues that have been posted by the members of HIFA, which are moderated by Dr. Packenham Walsh. And he does an amazing job at that. Apart from that, my most recent engagement with HIFA was... Um, uh, we are basically compiling a series of messages um, on the HIFA forum that have come across uh, regarding coronavirus. Uh, so the one that I combined was on combating digital health inequity in the time mm-hmm. of coronavirus and in the time of COVID-19. So I made a draft out of it and it's still in the process. And I also have a lot of mentors from different parts of uh, the world along with me that will be working on, on this right now. So we will sort of analyze all the messages that we have got from the platform of HIFA, uh, which have been posted by different members. So this is like a lot of resources There are about 800 messages that we will be analyzing. And hopefully we will be able to get, uh, you know, substantial information about it from it about different issues like you know digital health inequity or spreading stopping the spread of misinformation so this is something recent that I have done yes definitely I think that you know the usage of social media has really influenced our response to the pandemic in the sense that there's so much misinformation as you said and it's important that there's one database that can debunk those myths and address the truths that's correct Mm -hmm. so Moving on, what is your role as a correspondent for the Global Healthcare Workforce Network and a country correspondent for IHP Global? Right. So the Global Health Workforce Network um, is basically the gender, uh, the youth hub, the um, GHWN youth hub, which was, which has been um, formulated by the WHO to sort of get young people on board. Um, from different organizations together as a part of a global uh, movement, which addresses mainly, uh, you know, inequities in the healthcare sector, something which I'll be talking to you a little bit later about. Um, Mm -hmm. So inequities in the healthcare sector and, you know, things like that, uh, which are of serious issues to young people. 
So as uh, I'm a part of the communications team chan, uh, team for the GHWN and till now uh, we have just started and so till now we are sort of in the process of collecting responses uh, from, you know, different uh, people. Uh, so what I had done is a lot of people from my, even my from my college have been working on the front lines of COVID-19 and, you know, in different parts of the country in different, you know, rural hospitals and things like that. So to basically collaborate all their information together and and provided on the portal that we are working on right now in order to sort of amplify the voices of people, those who are working on the front line uh, and facing the difficulties that they might be facing as part of the healthcare workforce. Um, as So that has been my engagement with the GHWN. I can tell you more about it uh, from the gender equity uh, online conference that I was a part of. And also... Um, from IHP Global, so IHP is basically International Health Policies. It is a website and they also have a newsletter uh, talking, it's quite similar to HIFA. So they talk about different issues related to uh, healthcare and healthcare policies in general. So I am a country correspondent for India, so I mainly write about issues that have happened in India. So till now mm -hmm. I have written one article and I have finished my first installment. So there are about three to four installments that I will be working on. So my first issue that I addressed was regarding uh, how, if I'm not sure if you would have heard about it, uh, but uh, you know the recent uh, developments in India that happened uh, a couple of months ago was the passing of the Citizenship Amendment Act and the NRC, the National Register of the Citizens, and the NRP, which is a new law which was passed in India. Um, you know, it's it's kind of complicated. So maybe you know people could read up about it more to create awareness. But it was and ultimately going to affect primary healthcare because it included the. You know, it was not exactly. Um, it was kind of a divisive act in terms of in the on, in the grounds of religion. So, um, you know, I would not, you know, go into a lot of details of that, but it's basically something that uh, received a lot of backlash from Indian citizens in general. So I sort of wrote about the impact of um, primary health care. Uh, what is the impact on primary health care for CAA and NRC? And it is available on the International Health Policies website. And if you could read it and the listeners could read it, I would love for mm -hmm. hearing your feedback. Yeah, I'll definitely link it in the description of this podcast below. If any of you guys are interested, click that link. Um, awesome. So what resources did you used to launch the India chapter of Women in Global Health. That's also something you participated in, right? Right. So I was um, not alone in launching the India chapter of Women in Global Health. I uh, Women in Global Health basically is a global organization that was founded by... Um, co-founded by Dr. Rupa Dhat and a lot of other people um, from the, uh, you know, the global uh, healthcare sector. And these are all leading women in healthcare who are, you know, very people whom I take inspiration from. So mm -hmm. um, it was started about five years ago at the global level. And then it sort of, you know, had started, branched out into different chapters. And now there are different chapters in different countries like, you know, uh, there's a chapter, there are chapters in America. And then mm -hmm. recently the chapter that was started was in Washington, um, sorry, Seattle. So it has different chapters in Africa. And so we started the Indian chapter, uh, uh, I think last year in August or September. So I, I came to know about women in global health from the conference that I was a part of, which was, uh, the global conference on primary healthcare. Um, yeah. so I came to know about women in global health from that. And so I took interest in their activities. And when I found out that they had a new chapter, um, 
process application process open for different chapters i sort of reached out to the team and they connected me, me with four other women at that point of time who were already working on the process of the chapter development so i was like at that point of time i was the youngest member to join the group and they sort of acted like you know mentors for me uh because yeah. they really helped me understand the global health scenario and because they're all published uh like established uh healthcare professionals and or pu- people working in public health research and you know things like that so um we the resources that we use is uh, we got a lot of help from the global chapter of women in global health and apart from that you know we sort of reached out made connections um drafted um a, you know dra- documents and drives to reach out to people um uh you know in terms of you know uh people who are part of you know different advisory panels people who are part of different boards uh just just so to get you know more women from different uh healthcare workforce segments to get mm-hmm. uh, to be represented represented in women in global health so the main objective of women in global health is to resolve the issue of uh, sort of gender disparity um because you know women make up almost 60 to 70% of the healthcare workforce and despite that they do not have significant um place in leadership or significant um representation in leadership roles so that was a major aim and objective of women in global health and that is what we sort of try to propagate um i wouldn't say propagate but sort of you know um get the message across in india so some of the recent adv- uh, engagements that we have done is uh, as part of women in global health uh, the india chapter is we did a recently we did a series of um you know webinars three three part webinars uh, regarding uh, it's it was called the women in health global health uh, dialogue series for frontline workers so we got representatives from different aspects of frontline workers for example the asha workers or the accredited social health activists those who are working on the frontlines of covid-19 and they are they're basically the women that literally go from door to door and they are involved and engaged in the screening process for covid-19 and they mm-hmm. ensure all like you know all the timely health services are um delivered to communities whether it's covid-19 or not but however unfortunately these women mostly their voices do not come out because you know they're not at the at the level of leaders or they're not at the, at the very high level in the hierarchy however these women are the ones who carry out all the ground level work um in india especially in terms of data recording and things like that so they are the biggest resource anms and you know also in of uh, midwives and asha workers mm-hmm. and anganwadi workers are the ones that are extremely important in the healthcare sector right now so as part of women in global health we are trying to sort of give their these women a voice so yeah yeah mm-hmm. definitely i would say to anyone listening who wants to be a part of another organization whether that be women in global health or any other organization you're looking for just reach out stuti here as she said uh reached out to the organization and she was able to start her own chapter which i think is amazing so anyone out there just go for it make the calls make the emails and you can do it Yes yeah. that's correct yeah. and one of the best things was i was not alone in this process like i would have again mm-hmm. like to mention that i had a, an amazing team of mentors to sort of help me out so actually reaching out in certain ways really helps you in establishing connections and i was able to establish amazing connections um you know especially in terms of i found uh you know dr uh, dr shubhana gesh who was a mentor to me and who's also working mm-hmm. uh in a global health and disability so i was able to connect with 
her through women in global health and uh, she's been an amazing mentor to me in terms of you know writing about disability and sort of working on papers regarding disability and we are continuing our work right now and i think it was amazing because i came across her and i sort of had i was able to build up a network with her because we similar we share similar interests in terms of our work for disability advocacy so i think it's an amazing opportunity to network not just you know um get to know people but also network and build strong connections uh, for your mm-hmm. professional career yeah definitely so those list for those listening um if they want to start making connections and they don't know where to start what would you say to them I would say that you need to like just like you said you need to go right ahead take that step first step you know I even I was you know really apprehensive of approaching people earlier to be like oh that person is so senior and I'm such a junior person and I'm so young and maybe I don't know and you know what if what will their response be see the worst thing that might happen is you might not get any response at all that's fine right. but at least you would have tried so you know mm-hmm. I would like to share um a small thing here about uh, one of the experiences that i had if that's okay mm-hmm. um yeah. so i was uh, recently last year i was a visiting student uh, in the cognitive motor neuroscience lab at kyoto university um so i you know i as i as i mentioned before uh, to you uh, like i have an interest in you know neurological disorders and people working with disabilities so in the future mm-hmm. i want to pursue my graduate studies in neuroscience if things go well um and i would love to sort of you know uh, find out the the you know the intersection between um sort of neuroscience and disability so that's where my interest really lies So mm-hmm. the lab that I went to was uh, in Kyoto University uh was a cognitive motor neuroscience lab and you know being uh, an undergraduate student at, at that point I was an undergraduate student I was in my final year and I had a gap of like 2 months before I started my internship period um after writing my final exam so I wanted to utilize that time to do something substantial and not just you know just sit at home and chill out so I thought maybe mm-hmm. I could utilize that time to do something so I reached out to so many professors um running neuroscience lab across the world to you know just asking them if i could just come to their lab as a visitor or as an observer um mm-hmm. so that i could get some direction in terms of the research that i was interested in and i i emailed a lot of professors especially from the us from canada and you know i tried to apply to different um summer uh, internship opportunities but unfortunately all of them have uh, seats or all of them have you know um processes open just for the US residents and permanent citizens mm-hmm. uh however right. as an international applicant i was not allowed and you know i was not eligible for it so to say so i reached out personally emailed so many professors and most of them said that they do not take students at the undergraduate level some of them said they do not have you know they just want phd's or things like that some of them said they did not have place in their labs and you know they could not fund or they could not have a grant for that uh finally the professor from kyoto university reached out back to me and he helped me so much in terms of the entire process it was about the process of about 6 or 7 months and he helped mm-hmm. me uh, as well as you know the professors from my own university they really helped me in um sort of navigating around the whole issue because i was sort of the first student to go there uh, as a visiting observer student so he really helped me to you know right from where i was going to stay to what programs i would be attending what experiments i would be doing the lab he really helped me with everything and that all of that happened only because i sent out that one email introducing myself um 
and that I wanted mm-hmm. to come to his lab. So I think taking that first step is extremely important. The worst thing that will happen is you will not get a reply, but the best thing that you will happen that might happen is you might actually get the opportunity. So yeah, definitely. Just go for it. There's nothing to lose. Exactly. So connecting to that uh, question, what was the biggest challenge you faced when starting the India chapter of women in global health? Because you mentioned you had a lot of help um, in this process, but was there anything specifically difficult or challenging in this process? Right. So I would say that it was not something that I faced only personally, because again, like I said, it was more of like a group uh, process. Uh, It was something which we which was happening as a team. But one of the challenges that I personally felt was being a young person, um, you know, it was I was, you know, kind of facing finding it difficult to sort of, you know, make a position or make a position for myself in terms of establishing myself um, because I was young and um, Mm -hmm. because there were so many people who were like really experienced and, you know, who were really ahead in the field of public health. Um, So Mm -hmm. you're kind of like finding a voice, which is definitely very difficult for young people. And that's one of the main reasons why I, you know, want to be an advocate and I try to be an advocate for young people and their problems and issues. So I sort of tried to get a lot more young people engaged as part of the group. Uh, However, unfortunately, um, not a lot of young people were able to successfully engage in the group. And even now we just have a couple of us who are part of it. And, um, you know, I'm just really hopeful in the future that we will get more and more young people interested. I feel like many of these organizations, the big organizations, um, really need to be a lot more inclusive for young people, especially aged between the group uh, age groups of, you know, say 15 to 20, 25 or 26, because we are, you know, we are just still navigating things and we are early career mm-hmm. professionals or yeah. we are just students. And I think that we are really underrepresented in terms of, um, you know, the things that we want to do, even though we are extremely motivated and passionate about achieving uh, substantial change. So I think a lot mm-hmm. of organizations really need to be more inclusive in terms of these things. Um, so this, I think this is one of the challenges I personally faced as a part of the Women in Global Health. Um, mm-hmm. However, I feel like it was an amazing experience and it still has been an amazing experience where, like I already mentioned, I have been able to get guidance and mentorship on a lot of things. Yeah, I definitely think that the younger generation may feel unheard or their voice doesn't matter, but stepping out there, going for it is all you have to do to get started. That's correct. Mm -hmm. So as the only youth speaker from India that spoke about gender equity in the healthcare sector at the WHO Global Healthcare Workforce Network, can you give our audience an overview of why Gender equity in healthcare is a relevant issue that many experience today. Correct. So like I already mentioned, my work uh, with, you know, with Women in Global Health sort of made me understand a lot more about what are the issues in terms of representation of women in the healthcare workforce sector. So if you see a lot of women make up the role of, you know, nurses or midwives or you know different things like that even physicians however when it comes to leadership leadership roles or holding administrative posts um, in various organizations or even in hospitals or even in academia it is definitely a struggle for women to um, you know uh, sort of juggle in between work family career that is definitely there Mm -hmm. and so that might become a hindrance for women however uh 
I'm not suggesting that women are not capable of juggling between everything. I think women are extremely capable and that is why it is, you know, so important to recognize uh, the amount of contribution that women give in the world healthcare workforce sector. Uh, so a lot of women tend to, you know, take these roles of, you know, nurses or midwives and there are so many of them and they are so important and I'm glad that, you know, the WHO is... Uh, 2020 is the year of international international year of nurses and midwives and i'm glad the who and other organizations are recognizing the contribution that nurses have and you know as an allied health professional i would say that you know even we have a very substantial contribution that gets overlooked uh, most of the time um, so yeah mm-hmm. i would say that you know it's very important to discuss issues about uh, gender equity and um, in the healthcare workforce sector um, it is a relevant issue because um, many of these uh, women the, who are working on you know uh, different levels of the healthcare do not usually get represented at the top levels you know as let's say in in academia or as heads or as directors or in the board of hospitals or you know academic journals or things like that especially in healthcare and my question is why mm-hmm. is that when these women make up 70% of the healthcare workforce and the healthcare sector and they are the ones most of the women are doing the job why why is it that they're not represented at uh, you know the higher levels so right. uh, that was my so i was one of the panelists and that was my um, you know uh, the topic that i discussed about uh, in terms of you know uh, the opportunities that women get are way lesser as compared to what men might get mm-hmm. and there is a lot of you know there are chances of being uh, of having more burnouts from physician women and studies have shown that there are a lot of burnouts especially from younger women uh, mainly because they feel that you know they are not given as much recognition as their male mm-hmm. counterparts in the healthcare workforce sector even though they might be doing the same amount of job or even though they might be having the same amount of knowledge it's a struggle you know even i have personally faced it like um if you know maybe it's from my patients and maybe they are naive or they don't they don't know and they're not doing it intentionally however if you know i were to give let, let's say it's a, you know how uh, if there is a patient from a really like a really low socioeconomic status or somebody who is just maybe not that aware like you know not to be discriminatory or anything but somebody who might not really be um, aware of how sorry of how uh, you know the workforce the healthcare workforce system works or somebody mm-hmm. who might in general have been brought up in a climate where they do not get instructions from women and then you know me as a women uh, healthcare practitioner going and telling them to do something uh, they might not take it in a correct way many times i have faced that even my friends have faced that and they would rather like taking instructions from a man rather than a woman mm-hmm. because they have been brought up especially in a country like you know india or many other developing countries where they have been brought up in such a way or even developed countries i would say where they have been brought up in such a way that they the women do not generally instruct them to do things and so when they come into you know a hospital or a healthcare sector for getting a service of healthcare and a woman is telling them that you need to do this or you need to do that or you need to go here or you need to mm-hmm. go there and they just sort of get like okay why is she telling me and why can't there be a man telling mm-hmm. me instead so i have personally faced that and because of that reason i i felt that it was very important to um you know speak up about this issue and that is why i'm yeah. really thankful to the youth hub for giving me the opportunity mm-hmm. this is something that i wasn't aware of especially in the healthcare sector and that just goes to show that the conversation needs to start and i'm glad you have the resources and the ability to do that and uh, this is something that healthcare workers are facing on a daily basis. As you said, this is something you are facing. So 
Yeah, I think it's great that you're speaking up at um, public events to advocate for causes that are going under the radar. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So what was your experience like representing your country as a youth representative at the Global Conference on Primary Healthcare as a part of the UNMGCY constituency? Right. So uh, just to elaborate what UNMGCY is for our listeners, mm-hmm. it's the United Nations Major Group for Children and Youth. And if you are interested, it's for people who are between the age groups of 18 to 30 years. And you can um, sort of take part. There are different SDGs, as you might be aware, the UN uh, Sustainable Developmental Goals that the UN wants to achieve before 2030. So there are different mm-hmm. SDGs like gender equity and healthcare and education and climate change and action and, you know, uh, ending poverty and all of that. So there are different uh, SDGs and the SDG that I'm a part of is the SDG3 working group, which basically Mm -hmm. aims to achieve universal health coverage or uh, health equity, or I would say healthcare for all. That is the term. So um, Mm -hmm. as a part of the UNMGCY, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. we were uh, engaged in process, uh, in the process of holding uh, sort of, you know, engagements or holding, um, you know, holding consultations with other young people uh, in terms of what their issues and challenges are in the primary healthcare sector uh, from practitioners as well as from the general young young people, young population. Um, So I was a representative from the UNMGCY constituency uh, to the conference. And um, it was the conference which was, uh, you know, uh, uh, a lead up or a follow up of the conference that happened in uh, Alma-Ata, the declaration of Almaty in 1978. And 40 years later in 2018, it was uh, you know, the declaration of Astana was adopted in 2018 Mm -hmm. at this conference where there were members of states and heads of states uh, and, you know, the prime minister, uh, sorry, the health minister of India himself was present over there. And it Mm -hmm. it was a great opportunity uh, for me to, you know, just get to have a small chat with him over tea. And, you know, um, so there were different heads of states present over there. And that was the follow-up of the declaration of Astana for primary health care. So to those who are listening, it's basically like a mandate or I would say like a, a, you know, a document which talks about the different goals and the, um, the legis- uh, you know, the sort of the, the postulates for achieving or advancing primary health care. So the first one was adopted in 1978 and then it was upgraded in sort of 2018. Um, so I was part of that a process and I was, you know, uh, engaged in the, with the youth constituency. Um, however, I would mention here, like, again, like I said, um, youth voices are still underrepresented, even if it's in the UN or if it's in something as big as, you know, uh, an event with the UN or the WHO, youth voices are still underrepresented. And in mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, making young people come out and take action and speak for change and actually translating that into potential deliverable deliverables so I feel that that still misses and um, as a as a young person I really I kind of felt that and I'm sure a lot of young people who were present with me over there also felt that because you know Mm -hmm. there's something you know that comes in like in terms of tokenism that you are just engaging youth people sort of for the sake of engaging youth people uh, and not really for engaging them so I think um, 
a, a lot of us face that difficulty and even the people who are listening including yourself might be facing mm-hmm. that in different aspects of your life as a change maker when you're trying to advocate that you're not really taking seriously but you're taking uh, you know you're taking in stride because you're young and then just because you know people have to make a statement so i think that's something that i faced and a lot of people are facing not just me i like i come from a background of privilege so i can only imagine mm-hmm. how difficult it would be for people who are underrepresented for minorities for you know mm-hmm. indigenous people and underrepresented youth so the while the unmgcy really tries to sort of you know act as a un um partner organization for young people however the representation as such at that point of time i felt was a little bit lackluster um, but i'm sure mm-hmm. it is getting better Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that youth voices are undervalued, but they have power. We can see that all over the news, whether it be climate change or the Black Lives Matter movement, anything, even the healthcare movement, as you mentioned. So we really need to step up and change those opinions and show that our val- our voice is important. It has value. Yes, that's correct. Mhm. So in terms of projects is there anything you're looking forward to in regards to the healthcare programs that you are involved in Um so I would I would love to like I mentioned I have an interest in disability and neuroscience so I would love to one day or someday in the future maybe 5 years from now or 10 years from now have my own foundation and organization that is mm-hmm. uh, contributed towards the cause of uplifting and empowering people with disabilities and reintegrating them back into the community like I said right now every th- sort of engagement or change making that I'm doing uh, I'm doing it as part of you know an- another organization or as part of something that i'm just a part of however i want to be able to do something of my own really and yeah. uh, i feel like before i jump into doing something of my own uh, all these experiences that i'm getting right now will really help me in the future um to when i do actually end up having something of my own an organization or whether it's a campaign or anything like mm-hmm. that um i am working on a campaign right now that i would love to tell you about um mm-hmm. but i would something you know sort of want to have something that i can call completely of my own and my sort of my brain child or my project and mm-hmm. right now i just cannot do that because of my commitment to uh my you know the the undergraduate degree obligation that i'm doing um yeah. so i really need to commit to that so i cannot you know go out into the fields or just go out and do groundwork at the moment specifically however in the future i definitely have that in mind and all these experiences that i'm gaining um i hope it will i will be able to translate that someday into uh, something of my own yeah that's completely understandable uh, with a busy schedule i understand how starting something now may not be feasible but i'm glad that you have aspirations for something bigger in the future Thank so you. What sparked your passion for speaking up about the rights of young people with disabilities? You mentioned that's something that you uh, feel strongly about. Yes, that's correct. So like I said, I work with people with disabilities every day, day in and day out. So I have been working ever since I was a first year student. I was a freshman at my college and uh, um 
I have seen so many young people, so many people of my age group uh, facing difficulties and struggles, uh, especially uh, because they are young in terms of employment opportunities, even though the government and the legislation and the act, uh, the Person with Disabilities Act of India says a lot of things. However, how much of that actually translates into action or ground level uh, action is something that, you know, is a big question that really needs to be answered. So mm-hmm. I, I, you know, in my own way, I try to advocate for people with disabilities. Right now, I have co-authored an article which is currently under review by a peer-reviewed publication about COVID-19 and, you know, sexual and reproductive health of women and people with disabilities, um, especially because uh, people with disabilities, they, you know, I would not call them vulnerable but you know the society perceives them to be vulnerable and mm-hmm. so like the challenges that they face become multifold especially in the time of a pandemic it just becomes uh, you know it it becomes multiple times than what we face so uh, and i i i wonder why is that i mean the disability i personally feel lies in the environment not in the person so if there mm-hmm. is so if so there's a young person on a wheelchair who has to go and climb up the building um, and the building has only stairs it does not have a ramp through which the person can take their wheelchair up whose fault is that is that the person's fault or is that the fault of the of the building maker or the person or the environment it is the fault of the environment so i really mm-hmm. feel that disability lies in the environment it's in the community it's in the mindset and the perception of people especially coming from you know an, a developing nation where there is a lot of stigma still around disability and you know many parts of the country people believe or perceive disability to be a burden however i would say that i'm really glad to be part of a generation where this narrative is changing and young people or younger generations now are much more open and inclusive to people who mm-hmm. have disabilities or the lgbtqia community or anything mm-hmm. like that so i'm really glad to be a part of the generation like that but however there are still difficulties that exist and being a young person myself i felt it was extremely necessary for me um to do whatever is in my capacity to advocate or raise voices about people with disabilities um you know like i mentioned for something as simple as going to work for a person maybe with spinal cord injury person can you know they can move the wheelchair by themselves they can go to a college mm-hmm. they can study they can get a job but if the college or the job place or the workplace does not have a lift or just has only staircases whose fault mm-hmm. is that it's not the person's fault so accessibility inclusion community reintegration i think these are really important topics that need to be talked mm-hmm. about and yeah so that is one of the reasons why i love to and i would even want to in the future uh, advocate more for persons with disabilities especially young definitely, ones definitely i definitely think there's a stigma around those with disabilities and what they what they're capable of doing in terms of their intelligence etc so i think it's great that you're speaking up on their behalf and um yeah yeah, I would just like to mention something that I have recently done. Uh, I spoke, uh, I wrote about, I wrote an article and maybe I could send that over to you for readers, uh, for your listeners to mm-hmm. read up if they are, you know, if they would like to. It is published in the Journal of Science, Policy and Governance. It came out um 
last month uh, and it is about uh, addressing the divide uh, in accessibility to assistive technologies which is something that people with disabilities uh, use uh, it can be anything from you know just a stick uh, with a, you know a tapered end in order to have them wear their clothes to uh, something like completely low cost to something very high end like an electronic con- control unit um, that is where you press a button and even though you have a disability you can operate everything in, in your house so these assistive technologies are basically present in different parts of you know the house or different parts of the world however uh, how people access it in terms of you know people living in developed countries and developing countries there's a huge divide so i have written an article about that and it was presented to members of state uh, very recently like a couple of days back and it was part of policy change and i can probably link the article as well as the news regarding that and maybe um, if people are interested they could go through it Mm -hmm. Perfect. Yeah. So moving on with the conversation to the topic of mental health, when did your interest in mental health advocacy and awareness start? Right. So as part of my, um, as part of my, uh, you know, work in the hospital or uh, my clinical work that I'm supposed mm-hmm. to do, I I am involved in the rehabilitation and long-term care. I have been, uh, you know, during my student period, I have been involved in the rehabilitation and long-term care. Uh, as a learning process uh, for people with different mental illnesses, um, chronic mental illnesses like bipolar affective disorder, schizophrenia, mm-hmm. intellectual mm-hmm. disability, autism, all of that. So um, I sort of, you know, my passion or let's say my uh, interest towards that rose, um, you know, from that uh, my experience that I have gained. And so I really felt, felt it was important to raise awareness, especially, uh, you know, regarding the stigma that lies around mental health. And mm-hmm. in light of recent events that have been happening, um, a lot of people, and especially if you see in India, numbers can tell you that almost 50% of people, uh, of young people especially, are suffering with some sort of clinical depression, which may be diagnosed or undiagnosed. And India mm-hmm. is the second largest number of, you know, it's a country where a large number of suicides occur. Uh, so why is that? It's because mental health is a very neglected issue. And so that is how my interest to advocate and sort of raise awareness for mental health started, because I have been part of uh, rehabilitation firsthand. Mm-hmm. Speaking of India, what are your thoughts on the mel- mental health culture um, in India or the stereotypes around it? I would say that there has been a lot of significant progress made in terms of changing mm-hmm. the narratives. Like, again, I mentioned about disability. For mental yeah. health, also the same thing is happening. And as you might be aware, uh, very recently, um, uh, you know, a very famous leading actor has just committed suicide, which has opened up a really large conversation about mental health and about depression. And a lot of people are sort of, you know, saying that you can reach out and you can have conversations. And I'm really, I'm really glad that, you know, uh, however, the sad, the demise uh, of the actor is. Uh, however, I'm really glad that, you know, our conversations regarding mental health have opened up um, because of this issue. And I'm glad that, like I mentioned, being a part of a generation which is more inclusive and looks, likes to talk about the stigma, I'm, I'm really happy that more and more young people nowadays are ready to accept this and address this and even talk to their parents about it. Like even for mm-hmm. me, I found it a little bit hard to explain it to my parents and they're educated. They went to college. Um, mm-hmm. So I can only imagine how difficult it might be for people to explain to their parents or to you know sort of other generations about the difficulties that they are facing. 
So it's very right. important to open the narratives and change the culture. And I can tell you for sure that, yes, the culture about mental health, addressing the stigmas is definitely taking a change towards the positive side in India. So I'm glad. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. So you also mentioned that menstrual health is something that's important to you and something that you advocate for. So speaking of that, people in rural areas are not well informed about menstrual health and mental health. How did you approach speaking about these taboo topics and how did your audience react to what you said? Yes. So, you know, as part of community health uh, work and community health posting that I have had the opportunity to have uh, Mm -hmm. through my college work and also uh, with my work with different organizations, um, I sort of, uh, you know, approaching people in rural areas is definitely a challenge many of the times because there are still a lot of, you know, superstitions and things attached to uh, you know, stigma attached to menstrual health, uh, which is because of, you know, traditions, customs and cultures that have been perpetuated. So I think when you're doing something like this, the most important thing to remember is you need to be respectful, um, especially when you're approaching somebody from a rural community. They might have a belief that has been told to them by their mother or their sister or their grandmother, somebody whom they love and they respect and they value. So if we just completely go over and shun it and make fun of it or or, you know, say things like, you know, your, your mentality is backward or you're, you know, you're, or be hurtful to them. Definitely, mm-hmm. you're not going to get a positive uh, response. So I think the most important thing to remember is try to be gentle and try to talk to them uh, in a way that they understand. Do not throw a lot of scientific terms at them, which is an approach mm-hmm. that I like to take. Like not to take scientific, throw scientific terms at them, just make it simple for them to understand, even if it's basic health education that you're doing that I have also done as part of uh, my postings um, in the community. Uh, as part of my clinical training. So I think it's very important, even though I was not, you know, I'm not very well versed with the Tamil language um, over here that they speak, but whatever pointers I could give out, I think it's very important to make mm-hmm. it, break it down into smaller steps, whether it's, uh, whether, you're, whether you're talking about back pain or knee pain or menstrual health. I think mm-hmm. um, it needs to be brought out in the men's, uh, out into the mainstream. And when you talk about an, a, an, a sensitive issue like menstrual health, um, it needs to be mainstreamed. And also when you talk about it, it needs to be something that is addressed with caution, at the same time addressed with sensitivity. So like mm-hmm. I mentioned, you need to break it down, you need to make it simple, and you need to respect other people's values and opinions um, and talk to them in a way that might change their you know, narrative or thought process about it if they understand the scientific aspect of it, but not something that is forced upon them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So could you tell me more about the Beat the Blues campaign that you're working on? Sure. So I recently started working on this campaign for youth mental health, along with a friend of mine. Um, she initially had the idea of starting it because, you know, her friend committed suicide back in 2017, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, so she was also um, undergoing sort of, you know, uh, mental uh, illness I wouldn't say an illness but a mental health issue at that point of time um, and she has been through this experience firsthand and so we came to know each other through a mutual friend and when she reached out to me um, regarding this I instantly fell in love with the idea of it and mm-hmm. uh, because I have also worked in mental health and have been involved in uh, you know people with mental health um, you know, working with people who have chronic mental illnesses, like I already mentioned to you, I found it to be an extremely uh, important thing. So the idea is right now to raise awareness about um, 
maternal mental health, which is basically like uh, something that happens to mothers who have just given birth or mothers who are in their, you know, just postpartum or within their gestational period or the period of their pregnancy um, when they start to sort of you know develop emotional and psychological uh, aversions towards the child that they are going to give birth to or they have given birth mm-hmm. to and now you might ask that how is that even possible like a mother not liking her child uh, because a mother is you know mother is the one who loves the child the most in the world however it is possible it is a it, it is a psychiatric problem it is a psychological problem and a lot of people are not aware of it and a lot of people tend to take it in a negative way however it is mm-hmm. something that's extremely important so right now we fe- we did you know a little bit of our own research and uh, mainly she did the research and she also approached me and then i helped her with that so most of it is you know there are no right now there are no national level um policies in terms of you know including making uh, maternal mental health inclusive of uh, maternal healthcare services uh, especially like you know in terms of gynecologists who are the primary um focal point or point of contact for pregnant mothers or mothers who have just given birth and who have children young children or mm-hmm. infants um th- there's not a lot of engagement in terms of mental health like if you go to gynecologist maybe they might ask you about your your you know the term and the pre- things related to the pregnancy and all of that however i i'm not sure if a lot of people are asking about how the mother is actually feeling emotionally or psychologically so you know my sister is pregnant right now and i asked her the same question and even she comes from a privileged background but however even for her it's not something that is happening um so i can only imagine how how much it would be for people from lower social economic status so we felt mm-hmm. it was very important to address this issue so yes yeah, so i would uh, you know skip the details but just in short we have opened up an instagram page right now um that is uh, one part of the entire campaign as a as a whole uh, mm-hmm. one part of it is to just get dialogue around mental health and mental issues generated uh, which is not something that is you know we are throwing scientific information at them or we are forcing them to uh, talk about mental health however it's just a, it's just something that we started last uh, couple of you know weeks ago and uh, it is a instagram page it's called patronus mental health and so if you're if you're listening and if you're interested in following you can follow it to get some tips around mental health again nothing too scientific or nothing which is you know from professional aspects but something that we have all been through and something that we are speaking from from our experiences as mm-hmm. part of the campaign and then the large campaign is again to talk about mental Mhm. So to conclude here, what advice would you give to those who want to advocate and speak up about causes they believe in? I think I the most important thing is to first believe in the cause that you want to speak in and believe in yourself. I like I said, you know, for me I never thought this would anything that I have done would be possible and I'm extremely blessed and privileged and I had a lot of, you know, help from organizations and uh the volunteers uh volunteering platforms that i got um it was because you know people were ready to listen to me and people were ready to give a voice uh to me even though i have not been involved you know in a lot of groundwork like i said because of my busy schedule working at the hospital and being engaged with clients however i feel that every day for me is a learning process and you know me working with disabled people or people with different uh, who are differently able is actually making me a better advocate because i'm able to learn mm-hmm. uh, from their issues rather than just randomly going into the community and asking them uh, hey what is your problem 
tell me about your problem. I'm actually being involved uh, in a professional manner, uh, in a in a scientific and medical manner, and even in a psychosocial perspective uh, with people with disabilities, which is training me as a healthcare professional, as a human being, to learn about the issues and then address them in a targeted manner, rather than just going out into the community and doing something. So I think all the experience that I'm gaining right now is uh, definitely preparing me uh, for something in the future. And I look forward to that. But like I said, my advice would be to just, you know, have faith in yourself, have faith in the cause that you really believe in and Mm -hmm. just go ahead and take that extra step. Uh, If you currently feel like you are too busy, you're never too busy. Like I said, you do always Mm -hmm. have the time. And if you really believe in something, you will definitely find the time to do it. So Mm -hmm. And like I said, all the organizations that are there, or even if you're doing something out of your own uh, as a passion project, you know, then you can be your own boss and everything is very flexible. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's my advice. Mm -hmm. So how can other people get involved and help destigmatize menstrual and mental health issues? Um, So I think uh, one of the major things as young people that we can do is start from ourselves first, you know, before we go out into the community, lecture people, address other people, I think um, what we need to do is, you know, make sure that our own mental health, we take care of our own mental health. So even I have faced issues with my own mental health, you know, back in when I was a student in college, and I was also struggling with different things. Um, I sort of try to make that amend first, make those amends first, and, you know, then talk about mental health to other people. Because if you yourself Mm -hmm. are facing issues with mental health or you yourself are, you know, believe that there is something that, you know, you need to talk about, there's something wrong that's happening, um, that is the most important step. And the first step recognizing uh, is within yourself. Once you do that, Mm -hmm. I think you need to start with your close friends, family and circle, which is something that even I'm working on today. Like nobody is perfect and nobody can do everything together. But yes, you Mm -hmm. can do your own small bit, however much you can. And then you look out to the larger community. Mm -hmm. So I think every opportunity that comes your way, you should take that. And in terms of menstrual health, I would say being a woman, um, being a girl, if especially if you are listening, um, I think... There's a lot of stigma, you know, even in terms of, as I have personally faced, even in terms of being from a privileged community or being in terms of, uh, you know, a privileged uh, social, uh, socioeconomic status of society. So I think those mm-hmm. narratives also need to change. Like women need to stop sh- being shy about it. It's a natural process. Whether you live in a developed part of the world or a developing part of the world, you might face stigma in some way or the other. It's a natural process. And I think the first step to destigmatization is understanding the scientific aspect of it understanding that it's a natural process and understanding that it does not make a woman different from a man. And it is something that is beautiful and it's a part of nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that just about wraps up our podcast for today. And thank you to Stithi for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I think uh, it was a great and amazing chat with you. Thank you to our listeners for listening to today's podcast. Make sure to follow She the Change on Instagram at She the Change Pod.